Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hi, Ned. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Frenita? Very, very excited for the beginning of the school year. I know that sounds very weird, but, you know, I miss my students. Um, I miss talking about um, election law and constitutional law. And, you know, it's still, despite everything, we still live through an election season, and that is exciting. It, it, exciting is an understatement. I'll give yes. you that. <laughs> I decided my 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 new uh, my New Year's resolution for 2020 in August of 2020 is to be more positive. Um, I can't keep being bad cop and you be good cop. <laughs> but that does still mean that you know, despite my positivity, there are some things going on of, that are of concern, Ned. And so um, today, I want to focus our attention on um, things that may come up in November. Um, and whether or not we can sort of come to some consensus about whether or not um, federal power is as broad as the president thinks it is. So what am I referring to? So recently, um, the president has made statements about um, issuing an executive order in order to address mail-in voting, which he thinks is fraudulent. Um, And for me, it raises really interesting questions about the division of power between the states and the federal government in this area. Um, So... um, as you know, and as our listeners may know, um, each state runs its own election s- system. And this is true even with respect to federal elections. Now, of course, there are federal laws that govern federal elections, National Voter Registration Act, the Voting Rights Act, which covers state and federal and local elections, um, Help America Vote Act. So there is some federal legislation, but sort of our default in our system is that the states govern, right? The states decide. Um, they do an election administration. And so when um, the president is kind of making statements about the, the electoral system, his concerns about fraud and trying to use federal power to address it, it raises a very interesting question about what authorizes him to do that. Can he do that? Or does Indeed. it so go against our system of federalism in this area for federal power to be exercised in this way? Um, and so I think we will start there today with this conversation, because I know that our viewers are probably wondering the same thing. Right. And one of the things that I've been wondering about is whether we can think about this neutrally with our view of which president is holding the power or because, you know, it, obviously people have views on President Trump. People have views on President Obama. Um, and the, but the question under constitutional law is, are there right answers to the distribution of power, regardless of whether you happen to like the current incumbent or not? I think that that's right. Um, And I also think that we are um, biased by how the power has been used historically. And so, you know, I know when I teach election law, oftentimes it's with this narrative of the states as the bad actor, right? And the federal government swoops in and saves the day. Uh, You know, I've I've learned so much from your work. And in your work, you talk about um, some of these election issues. and, And many times the federal government is like the savior. Um, but that does not erase the fact that the federal government can also be a bad actor in certain situations. Um, so I don't know if that means it's hard to take a neutral stance with respect to this. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and part of it is, and I'm willing to admit this, is just, I'm, 
you know, if you're informed by the history, you are somewhat seasoned to think about the federal government as stepping in to um, expand voting rights. Um, that was true during the Reconstruction era. Um, and even after a century of silence, where the federal government did nothing, we still thought of the, the states as bad actors. And then the federal government coming in in the 1950s and 1960s to start to be more assertive in the area of voting rights. Um, and so um, that brings us to this executive order, though. This would not be an expansion of voting, right? This would be a situation in which he, under the auspices of controlling fraud, would seek to um, uh, limit the ability of people to vote by mail. Um, and, and so is that legitimate, right? Is this this view of trying to pre prevent fraud, trying to ensure the integrity of our election system, is, it, is this a legitimate exercise of federal power? Right, no, I think that's the right question. I think just to back up a second, I'm going to try to explain what I think is the theory of the case on behalf of, of what federal power in this context would mean. It doesn't mean I agree with it, but I just kind of want to put it on the table so that we can kind of examine it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's actually two parts to the argument. The, the first part is an attitude about the relationship between vote by mail and the 14th Amendment, which I think is incorrect, but I think it's the predicate to the assertion of federal power. And then the the assertion of federal power would be an effort to enforce voting rights based on this wrong understanding. So, so that's a mouthful. Um, there's a lot of litigation going on all around the country by conservative plaintiffs. Um, sometimes it's the Trump campaign itself. Sometimes it's other conservative surrogates. That, as I understand the argument, it's there. The claim is it, it draws upon this jurisprudence of voting rights at the. Supreme Court since the uh, 1960s of one person, one vote, Reynolds versus Sims, Baker versus Carr. There's a long lineage of cases that construe the Constitution to protect equal voting rights. Uh, given that premise, what's new in the this year's litigation is a claim that it's a denial of equal voting rights if you let fraudulent mail ballots or absentee ballots dilute proper ballots. Now, I don't buy the argument that these are fraudulent absentee ballots, but that's the claim. And then, so then the question of federal power that I'm wrestling with is to what degree does the federal government, whether it's Congress or the Justice Department or the president, have the authority to enforce a vision of voting rights, even if I think it's the wrong vision. So if before we even get to an executive order in President Trump. And what if what if Congress tried to preempt, what if Congress tried to say that there shall be no absentee voting at all? I wouldn't like that policy, but I take it Congress could do that for congressional elections just on its Article I power to preempt state law for congressional elections. And even if we didn't like that policy, we kind of be stuck because Congress can do that. What if then Congress more aggressively decided to say, well, you know what? We passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to enforce voting rights. And in part of doing that, we eliminated poll taxes. We eliminated literacy requirements. Well, you know what? We're going to eliminate absentee voting because we actually think that violates equal voting rights. I, I think that would be a wrong conception of voting rights, but I worry that they might actually have the power to do that. What do, you, what do you think? 
Um, so, so I agree with you that Congress has more authority when it comes to congressional elections under the elections clause that empowers Congress to displace state regulations. Um, but when it comes to state and local elections, it's a little bit trickier. Uh, so the Voting Rights Act, when it was first enacted, was passed based on the 15th Amendment, which gave it the racial hook. Um, I think that is, is more, a more difficult argument to sort of claim that um, race is what's driving this in terms of, you know, that, there, that Congress will be able to establish that mail-in voting, you know, disproportionately affects people of color in a negative way. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, though, you're right. If, the, if we think about this in terms of of equality and voting, and just the fundamental right to vote, maybe that provides a stronger hook. Um, but in terms of Congress's uh, Congress's enforcement authority, um, I'm I'm starting to wonder whether or not the precedents that I hate <laughs> can provide some support here. So Shelby County, which is the um, the Supreme Court decision that invalidated uh, a portion of the Voting Rights Act, part of the court's argument was that Congress did not build an adequate record. And so in this context, if to me, it seems that Congress would also have to build a record to show that there is some type of fraud or some type of problem in um, absentee voting or uh, mail-in voting that sort of justifies this type of legislation. Um, interestingly enough, this reminds me of the Lodge Force Act, which is something that me and you have talked about recently, because um, that was a bill proposed in 1890. And what it and so Congress uh, proposed a Lodge Force Act, which would have instituted um, congressional oversight. I'm sorry. Yes. Congressional oversight of uh, congressional elections uh, nationwide. If um, a certain number of people within a congressional district requested federal intervention um, and part of it was about addressing fraud. And so it's not that Congress, this whole idea that there may be fraud is unprecedented, right? It's just that you have to sort of establish and prove that it exists. Now, the 1890 bill failed uh, for a number of reasons, right? But, but it does provide sort of this precedent for, you know, the, the idea that Congress can do this. But I think that you have to also take into consideration recent case law, which establishes that Congress has to prove that federal intervention is necessary. And that record just simply isn't there because there's no evidence of fraud in mail-in voting, right? The, the type of widespread and systematic fraud that would justify federal intervention at the Shelby County Court was looking for with respect to, to the Voting Rights Act. Why should right. this be any different? So again, I'm, I'm just sort of trying to brainstorm, um, not because I've, I think that what I'm about to say is the right answer. But suppose, you know, in the White House now, the president's lawyers are meeting with the Justice Department lawyers thinking, you know, what arguments could they make to support federal control of the voting process this year? Could they claim, in, instead of trying to rely on the 14th or 15th Amendment, would it be good enough from their perspective to just say, as long as we prevent the use of of absentee ballots that we don't like in in congressional elections, that is good enough from our perspective because presidential elections piggyback on congressional elections. So who cares about mayor, governor, state legislature? So can we issue an executive order that would ban what we don't like just for this year's congressional elections? And that'll be enough to get us where we want to go. Could, could they do that? I could see from a strategic standpoint why that would be a policy that would be attractive because most states run unitary elections. And so even if the federal government passes legislation that only applies to federal elections and not state and local elections, it's very difficult for states to disaggregate them. 
right? So it, it's, it's, it's pretty much a, a given that any federal regulation will affect elections across the board. Um, now, it's possible after the proof of citizenship requirements were struck down, um, a couple of states tried to maintain them for state and local elections, um, but not for federal elections because that it was struck down in that context. So it's not unheard of, but it's just less likely because it's, it's actually really expensive to do that. Um, but could they do that without running afoul of the Constitution? Could they say, well, we will adopt this policy uh, for congressional elections because that favors us? Um, I don't know. Right. And, and one of the reasons I'm hesitating, Ned, is because think about partisan gerrymandering. It really doesn't get any more uh, blatant about doing things for partisan gain than with partisan gerrymandering. And essentially, we live in a system where the court feels like, eh. <laughs> like you know, we, we don't think that we have the capability of resolving those types of disputes. With that, it, so so kind of applying that same knowledge here, and, and this is why I don't know what the answer is. Could they do that in this context? Could they um, adopt legislation that affects congressional elections for what is essentially partisan gain? When the court has said that partisanship is um, beyond their beyond the purview of the court, if you think about it that way, I, I think I'm more troubled, less positive but still not sure what the answer is because I don't know how you cabinet is partisanship. Okay. In some contexts, but not others. I'm, I'm just not sure. Yeah. Though I think if Congress, I mean, one of the things that I've been interested in is following the debate in Congress right now for emergency funding to run the election. And as I understand that debate, uh, the Democrats have wanted to have strings attached to the federal money, including more expansive vote by mail. Mm -hmm. And Senator McConnell and the Republicans have said, just give the states the money that they need it, and they'll figure out how to use it. And unfortunately, I think Congress is, is stalemated over that. Um, but the same, um, I think if Congress agreed with, with the Democrats, they could impose the strings. And the strings that the Democrats would want would be more expansive vote by mail. But it, but if the same power, I think, could go the other way. And so I think, unfortunately, if Congress passed the law that said for congressional elections, there will be no vote by mail, only in-person voting, even in a COVID environment, I think, unfortunately, that would be valid. It's not going to happen, so we don't have to worry about that. So I think the way to attack a potential executive order is not on federalism grounds, but maybe separation of powers grounds. In other words, I, I don't think either President Trump out of the White House or Attorney General Barr of the Justice Department has unilateral authority to rewrite the law of congressional elections just because Congress has failed to write the law that they want. Um, you know, I, I know that there's this effort to give executive power more latitude whether we're talking about immigration law or other forms of law, but but I think it's very dangerous to think that that the executive branch can just fill gaps in congressional legislation that Congress hasn't decided to fill itself to how to run American elections. Um, but I think but I I'd be curious to, yeah. to your reaction. I mean, I think. Mm -hmm. I think we're in novel territory because I don't think we've ever seen before the executive branch 
attempting to get that far out of front of both Congress and the states in a way that seems to be to favor the the executive incumbent. So I have, I think, two points, one that I think you'll agree with and one I think you'll push back on. Um, so, so my first point is, I think that that's right. I think that the president is trying to get out in front of the entities that the Constitution has ac- actually delegated this authority to. Um, and so I, don't, I actually don't think that the president is empowered to do this by executive order. It just strikes me as, because um, Congress hasn't done it, and Congress also hasn't delegated authority to the president to do it. Um, so that strikes me as constitutionally problematic. Uh, but I want to reference back to something you said about if Congress had the power to Um, expand voting protections, like if the Democrats got their way, it's kind of hard to sort of view the opposite as being constitutionally problematic. Whereas if, you know, the, the, I don't know if you meant the money going to the states and then the states deciding to restrict it, or if Congress passed a a law in which vote by mail was restricted. I assume the latter, right? The latter, yeah. Right. Okay. So if, if Congress can expand vote by mail, then why shouldn't they be able to restrict it in the context of congressional elections? I want to resist that that's the same. Right. So um, when when you initially made that comment, I, I felt like it was I was like, that must be true. But but I, I think instinctually, I just want to resist it a little bit because so. So one reason I felt that it must be true is because when you think about Congress's power under the elections clause and you think about this being congressional elections, I mean, this falls squarely within the, the authority, the constitutional delegation of power to Congress to do this. Um, and so it strikes me that, yeah, they should be the same, but I want to caution and I want to provide a little caution in how we think about this. So if that's truly a fundamental right to vote, I do think courts should take a closer look at restrictions that will narrow the electorate as opposed to those that enlarge it. Um, and one of the reasons why I think you'll resist that is because the court has basically said no, that it's not doing that. <laughs> Uh, but I, I just, it just strikes me that, you know, uh, again, if we are a democracy, then we should look more favorably upon uh, laws that expand the electorate, that make it easier to vote. Um, this goes back to uh, Justice Brennan's ratchet theory, right? That Congress can exceed the floor when it comes to what a constitutional right means. They just can't fall below the floor. And the floor being what the court has said that the constitutional right is. So if the, if, if the court says that the right to vote is X, Congress can do X plus one, X plus two, but Congress cannot do X minus one, right? And so even though the court's later case law seems to push back against that um, and how they think about Congress, congressional power and the record that Congress has to build in order to pass legislation, it makes it very hard for Congress to be more protective. And in fact, the court has said in City of Bernie that, you know, the court decides what rights mean, what a right consists of, not Congress. Um, but I think this instinctually, I still resist this idea that uh, even if the court leads the way and, and defines the scope of constitutional rights, that Congress's power is such where it can go um, equally in either direction in deciding how much of the right to vote to protect, if that makes sense. Yes, but, but I, I think consistent with everything that you said, if Congress had a good faith view and and an evidence-based view that certain practices actually did interfere with the integrity of the process. I think they could legislate on that. So again, I don't want to accept the attorney general's view that every absentee vote is potentially a foreign counterfeit. I think there's no evidence for that. And I'm 
you know, it doesn't seem to me in good faith, but I don't want to impute bad motive. But but it, it does seem to me that there are things that could um, affect the integrity of the process that have the risk of undermining valid votes. So, for example, voting technology that that lacks a, a paper trail is risky, right? Because you can't, right? If, if somebody hacks a voting machine that doesn't have a paper record, that could be tampering. So I do think Congress would have the power to tell us states for congressional elections, you have to use technology that is sufficiently safe from our security point of view. And I would hope that Congress would have, again, good faith and evidence-based doing that. And, and the state might object to say, you know what, your technology is really expensive. It's going to cause us to buy fewer of those machines and fewer machines means longer lines. And that might risk as, as causing problems for our voters. I sort of get that. And, and, and there's trade-offs here. But I think Congress could say, well, we're legislating in the electoral process for congressional elections, and we'll take a hit on the access side, you know, for the sake of the integrity side of the, the balance. Um, and if Congress is acting in good faith reasonably, I think they have a certain latitude. So if I allow that argument, then I'm in the ballpark of letting Congress make some judgments in this regard. So then what if the next congressional judgment is, you know, vote by mail is just too dangerous. I don't agree with that. But if Congress is allowed to make judgments, can I stop them from making that judgment? No. But what we can do is, and, and maybe this is a happy compromise, right? Maybe it's about the strength of the record, right? If Congress is trying to adopt a regulation that will make it more difficult for people to vote, but they have the evidence to back it up, the courts should demand that. Whereas we should be less suspicious about regulations that um, would enlarge or provide more access to the franchise. I think that, and, and this isn't, you know, I, I am not attacking the traditional regulations that make sure that people are not voting in ways that are, you know, I am not attacking regulations that would, um, that protect the integrity of the process. And it really does, right? Like voter registration makes sense. Um, verifying people's identity, although we may disagree about what type of verification is required. I think everyone agrees that we, we have to verify that people are who they are. Um, so I'm, I'm not attacking that. But just in the sense that if we're thinking about this broader question of what Congress can do, um, in the, the post-voting rights 1965 era, the court was comfortable with this idea of Congress being more aggressive in protecting the right to vote. Um, and so I do think that if we are heading towards a future where the executive thinks that they can get more involved, be it the DOJ and the president through executive orders, where they think they can be more involved in this process, I do think it's even more important to be clear about what Congress can do, right? Because just by definition, that limits what the president can do and it shapes what the president can do. Um, and so that's why I'm like, I don't know if we should view those as being two halves of, of the same apple. Um, I do think that we should be suspicious when Congress passes legislation um, that makes it more hard, makes it more difficult for people to vote. Um, so that makes sense. Can I try to um, ask, uh, I'm, I'm calling it a practical question, but in a way it's hypothetical. So I hope it, it never comes to pass. But, you know, if we had a, so how much should we worry about the, either the president or the Justice Department 
doing something that they purport to do pursuant to law and legal authority that could have the effect of really changing the rules for either casting votes or counting them. So something you know, that happens between now and November that says, here are the new directives on how to do voting, and it's the opposite of what everybody thinks, and it doesn't allow for vote by mail. That would be at the front end. Or at the back end, everybody's voted by mail or voted in whatever way they voted, and, and the Justice Department comes in and says, well, here's a new uh, directive on the counting process, and by the way, you have to invalidate all those vote-by-mail ballots because the federal government doesn't like them. I mean, these, things, these hypotheticals seem crazy to me at, at one level, but I hear, I see articles, I hear people talking about the risk of this kind of federal intervention this year. Remember how I said I was going to be positive? Mm-hmm. Give me a little bit of room here, because that's going to go out the window. That's, it actually doesn't seem that crazy to me that something like that could happen. Um, and, and part of it is I blame it on the RNC versus DNC decision, right, that came out of the Supreme Court in April that had to do with the Wisconsin primary. Um, and the fact that voters who didn't receive absentee ballots <laughs> could be disenfranchised in that way or forced to go and vote in the middle of a global pandemic, it really was a, a moment for me in realizing that the Supreme Court would not be on the side of expansive voting rights um, during this cycle. And I think it put me in the mind state of saying that if the president decides to do anything with the election, it is quite possible that the court might back him up. Right. So so it sounds crazy in an ordinary time, but there are so many things that have happened this year that wasn't on my 2020 bingo card that it just strikes me as completely possible. Right. Yeah. Even if we are in a because this is. <laughs> One thing that I've had to come to terms with, Ned, is the fact that the Warren Court in the court of the 1960s and the jurisprudence that, you know, upheld the original Voting Rights Act and the reauthorizations and those decisions engaged in a very expansive view of federal power that the conservative Supreme Court spent 30 years pushing back against. It will be nothing for that court to turn around and read it expansively again in order to support what's going on. Right. The precedents are there. And so we have a lot of decisions in the intervening three, four, five decades that have gutted some of those decisions, but have not explicitly turned them outright, overturned them outright. And so what that means is that you can conceivably have the court take a look at what is going on um, with the federal government and how they're trying to protect the integrity of the election turn to those earlier 1960 precedents that have been gutted but not explicitly overturned and use that to protect what the federal government is doing now. Um, and so, yes, hypothetical, but for me, terrifying impossible. Maybe, but here's where I sort of want to pick up on what you said earlier about Shelby County as a precedent that you don't like and wonder whether actually Hate that... Hate Hate. Fair enough. Hate. I hear you. I hear you. Um, as you know, I'm more sympathetic to it, even though I wouldn't have joined it. Um, but uh, on the premise that some of the justice, well, all the justice, I'll start with the premise that justices think of themselves as principled. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they, they have that self-conception, I think. I don't think it, they think of themselves as political hacks. So, you know, working with the chief justice's own self-image as a, 
as someone who's principled. Like he said he doesn't want there to be Obama judges and Bush judges. He want, just wants there to be judges. So taking him at his word and taking him as the author of Shelby County isn't the right play to, or brief to write to him to say, Your Honor, uh, if if the Justice Department or the president is trying to do this thing, to say that's not permissible, Your Honor, for the following reasons. You in Shelby County wrote that the baseline assumption is that states run elections, point number one. And then point number two, insofar as the executive branch is trying to, in essence, step in Congress's shoes, you've made clear in the immigration context, Trump versus Hawaii, and in the census context, that you're just not going to take the Justice Department or the executive branch's assertions at face value. You're going to insist on evidence to back it up. Uh, that's at least my reading of some of uh, the Chief Justice's rejection of, uh, of, of President Trump, frankly, in a couple of recent cases, not election cases. But I think I could use those precedents plus Shelby County to say, you, Chief Justice, cannot tolerate this executive branch interference with what states are trying to do in terms of the casting and counting of ballots. Wouldn't that work as an argument? Uh, possibly. Uh, but but let me be clear. My argument does not actually require the justices to be unprincipled, right? I, it kind of sounded like it did, right? Because I'm like, look, they could just turn to precedents that they hate in order to validate federal action now. But really, it has to do with an order of priority, right? Like, the, if you read Shelby County, one of the things that the, the chief justice in writing for the majority is quite clear about is that he thinks that we are post-racial, right? We don't, we don't have poll taxes anymore. We don't have these devices that had the effect of leaving African-Americans and Latinx out of the political process, right? We don't have a situation that uh, where 2013 looked like 1965. Uh, but fraud is not dead to this court, right? And even if states have trouble producing actual fraud, the appearance of fraud is enough. I believe that they think that, right? And so if you prioritize that, um, then it makes sense to, to look to precedents that would support broad federal action in this, this context, because you actually believe that the end goal is within the power of the federal government. And it's also laudable in a way that the federal government legislating on the basis of race is not. It's not about the federal government necessarily being unprincipled. It's more so about the justices having a different view of what is a real threat to the voting process. Right, but there, there's a bunch of things to worry about for this year's election. I'm, you know, as you know, I'm worried about a lot of stuff, but I'm trying to triage the things I really should be worried about for the things that I don't have to worry about quite as much. And it just seems to me that if the executive branch of the federal government comes in precipitously at the last minute before voting begins to try to change the rules for how America votes. I actually think Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' small c conservative instincts are going to say, no, 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 this is too last minute. It's sort of like applying the Purcell principle, which stops lower federal court judges from interfering. And again, even if we might think Alabama is doing things wrong in the voting process this year, or even if we think, you know, other states are doing it wrong, that what Purcell seems to say is that, you know, we're kind of stuck with the system that we have, uh, especially if you try to change it at the last minute. And I would like to think that that concept applies just as much to the executive branch as it does to the judicial branch. 
And and so if if we get, I mean, it's way too late right now for the federal government to be telling states to change the rules, unless that comes from Congress. You know, and even then, I think it's you know, if Congress passed a new law next week saying every state had to do universal vote by mail, or no state could have any vote by mail, either of those changes in either direction would be hugely destabilizing administratively. But Congress does have the power to con- control federal elections, so the states, I guess, would be stuck with that. But there's no way the executive branch, in the absence of congressional elect- uh, legislation, should be allowed to come in at the last minute to try to tell states what to do. So I would, I would hope that the Supreme Court would immediately enjoin that federal interference in the same way that it's put these stays on these, you know, on the lower court injunctions as, as too last minute. It's always interesting to me, though, how the Supreme Court doesn't see its own decisions at the last minute as destabilizing, right? It's like, you know, they're concerned about last minute changes, but everything is happening at such a fast pace because oftentimes we're talking about election emergencies, right? And so if a district court has said that this is the best way to make sure that people who have had a, made a good faith effort to do everything that they were supposed to do as required by the state in order to vote, why is it, why is that destabilizing as opposed to the Supreme Court coming in at the 11th hour and reversing the district court order, right? They, there's, there's never any full consideration of what the per sale principle means as it affects voters, Right. The, the Supreme Court decisions are also last minute election changes. Um, and so so I do think that the question is actually more complicated than we um, really discuss, because we we at least in this covid time, the way that Purcell has applied, we've talked about it exclusive of the Supreme Court decision itself being destabilizing. And I think that in itself is is maybe something to think of as we enter into, you know, the height of election season. Um, But yeah, I I generally agree that, you know, Congress has the power to do it, but that doesn't mean that Congress should do it and that it would be extremely destabilizing. Um, And but for that reason, we should be even more concerned if the president tries to do it. So I don't disagree with you there. But one thing that struck me about your answer is this idea that um, the Supreme Court and applying the principle is trying to keep the election stable when I in some cases I do view them as a destabilizing force in and of themselves. Right. No, I, I mean, there, I'm troubled by what happened in April in Wisconsin and then in the Supreme Court. I'll um, never get over it, Ned. I'll <laughs> never get over it. Uh, good, you know, good for you in a way, because we shouldn't get over it. I think that's a fair, a fair point. Um, but, I mean, I, you know, w- w- one theme that has emerged I think in the popular press over the last week is the sense that there is now inevitability that this election is going to be chaotic and get derailed and it's we're going to have to it's Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall and have to pick up the pieces and I actually think that that's quite pernicious um, because I think that plays to anybody who wants chaos and that also might play to the candidate who perceives he's behind. And therefore, you know, if, if the election runs ordinarily and you might lose, you might try to just have a train wreck because you're not going to win if it, the trains run on time. So a train wreck is your best shot. So I, I think, 
and not that I have the, all the answer, but, but I, I think we should start from the premise that as difficult as this election is given COVID, and as imperfect as elections as are always are, that you and I have talked about, and I share your sense of don't, you know, don't lose sight on the fact that we have to improve the system. I am for recording. Next time, you got to come back. Run it this time, but I think, you know, I think there is still the chance that we will have or could have an election this year, very blemished, but that works in the sense of giving us the answer that the voters collectively want. And therefore, I, do, I think we should try very hard not to let anybody derail the train and, or, and, or assume that it's just going to be a mess. And, and I think, I'd like to think that if somebody does try to derail the train, that the court could act as a role to say, no, 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 we're in the business of issuing injunctions to prevent train derailments. Um, and I don't want to give up on that possibility. I'm not giving up, right? I, I still, you know, despite everything, believe that courts have a role to play in making sure the trains run on time. Um, one thing that strikes me about all of this and, and a reason why people are kind of accepting this this idea that there, there will likely be chaos is that we don't know how to talk about this, right? We don't know how to have a conversation about having an election nationwide that will be conducted predominantly by mail in the middle of a global pandemic, right? And, and this is, even though we are in the, I think, what, fifth month of everything with the global pandemic, I still think that it is... It's such an unprecedented time that we don't have language around this. Um, and so I, maybe I'm a little bit more understanding than you with respect to, you know, the, the language of chaos becoming the norm. And, and, and I get sort of pushing back and saying, no, 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 we can do this. We can still have um, an election in which the outcome is clear. And I hope that's true. But I do think that part of it is that we just don't know how to talk about this. We don't know. We, what, what do we know in this country? We know elections that are a challenge because of racial issues, because of partisan issues. And um, by all measures, this, this election will have those issues too. But I just think the added sort of, how does COVID exacerbate everything that's going on? We don't have language around that. And I think what? that's what's really proven to be a challenge. But why is it the right way to talk about this is, all right, yes, COVID is going to stress the system, mm -hmm. but the system has components that can meet the challenge. So the main additional stress is going to be on much more vote by mail. But it's not like vote by mail is this new thing. In fact, the, even the term vote by mail is interchangeable to absentee voting. Mm -hmm. uh, and many states have converted to no excuse absentee voting, which gives voters a choice. And that system, as a matter of law, can handle COVID. Now, administratively, there are going to be more of those ballots than in the past, but no legal difference, right? You do not, Pennsylvania does not need to change its law. They already did that to adopt the kind of law that Florida and North Carolina and Ohio already have, meaning a voter gets a choice whether they vote in person or by mail. It's a very few number of states like Texas and Tennessee that insist on having an excuse. And I feel really badly for those states because I think that's really sad that they're being so restrictive. 
But from a nationwide presidential election perspective, most of the states are already converted to allowing voters to make this choice. Now, how is that going to affect what we understand the elect so electoral process to be? As long as voters get the ballots that they're entitled to cast, that's step one. Now, we, Wisconsin showed us we have to worry administratively about capacity. But that's where the mantra of flatten the absentee ballot curve comes in, right? If voters take the initiative to apply for their ballot early enough and we smooth out the administrative process, everybody who wants an absentee ballot should be able to get one. And the states, if they are at risk in that regard, they've got to find the resources, whether Congress gives it to them or not, to make sure that they can administratively put a, a ballot in everybody's hands who's legally entitled to have it. We don't need a legal change for that. We just need to, to fulfill that. All right, now let's say we do that. Let's say we have all these extra absentee ballots that people are already entitled to vote. Now we got to count them. Now the president may say fraud, 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 but it's just not true. We've got mechanisms to verify the legitimacy of absentee votes. We check signatures, we check voter registration. The reason why absentee ballots are rejected at alarmingly high rates for a signature mismatch is because they're not automatically counted. They have to be verified. Now, how long is that gonna take? Under state law, it's, that's entitled to take two or three weeks already. That's not a legal change that we need. Again, normally it doesn't make a difference to projecting winners on election night, but there's no legal difference just because 60% of voters are doing that instead of 20% or 5%. The same legal rules apply. So nobody should be thinking crisis or chaos if the process is working the way it should be. The only time that we have a real risk of a chaos is if the counting process can't be completed by the federal deadlines that it exists. But the fact that we won't know the winner on election night, not a crisis. If it takes two or three weeks to count absentee ballots, not a crisis. So why should we be letting people talk about you know, chaos and crisis if the normal rules stress to be sure because of volume, but nothing legally different is, go is or should be going on this year? I think it's because the legal and administrative differences have practical significance, right? It's one thing to say that a legal regime can accommodate what we need it to do, but it's another thing when the administrative infrastructure can't accommodate what we need it to do legally. Um, and I think that's the problem. So uh, yes, the law can accommodate a shift from 20% absentee ballots to 60%, but can the state's election systems accommodate that change? And we know that they don't have the money to really do that. Um, and so then it becomes a question of, well, who's disenfranchised? It seems inevitable. And I think that is the source of the chaos. And then you also have to remember the chaos narrative, rather. Um, but you also have to remember that we're coming off the heels of 2016, which a lot of people view as a chaotic election. Um, it may or may not, right? If you think about your view of what a legitimate and free and fair election is, it was le legitimate and free and fair because we still had a clear winner, um, even if that person lost the lost the popular vote because in our system, the electoral college is what determines the winner, right? But I think that the average person who may not be familiar with how the system actually works in detail um, may have felt like, like that was a chaotic election, right? And so there's just this perception that feeds into our narratives about 2020 on top of everything else going on, right? But I do think you're right. I do think our legal system can accommodate what we need it to do. 
Um, but I still think we might fall short because we haven't done what we needed to do administratively in order to make sure everyone can vote who's legally entitled to vote. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And maybe that's where we should end, because to me, that is the critical question, whether we we find a way to create the administrative capacity to do what the law already requires. To me, that's the big question. So Agreed. shall we Agreed. shall we end on that question and then Let's come back? and that. That's a fairly positive note, too. Right. We have a, a we have a, our marching orders. How can we administratively get where we are legally? Right. No, I think I like that frame because that really is the test, right? I mean, we, the mm -hmm. law can handle this if the administration can handle it. And that's the question COVID has put to us. So, all right, let's be positive. Let's, be let's positive. stay safe and let's uh, reconvene in a couple of weeks. Sounds good. Take care. You too, Fernita. Take care. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.